seven eyes of the Lord, which range through the whole earth. I think the, the phrase, that, um, two phrases Ruth was particularly keen that we noted, um, not by might not or by power, but by my spirit. And then an, um, an alternative translation of something towards the end, do not despise the day of small things. All the hymns we're going to sing this morning have been chosen because they are significant in some way. Some to me, some to us, all of them in the Christian story. And we're going to start with a very self-indulgent choice. This is my baptism hymn, it's my ordination hymn, it's my two times induction hymn, and now it's my tenth birthday hymn. <laughs> Lord, for the years your love has kept and guided. And if you're able to stand, we are invited to do so as we sing. sung God's praises, we come with our prayers of approach to God. 
And after I've led us in prayer, as is our custom at Hillhead, we join together in the Lord's Prayer. And please do that in whatever language, whatever version is the most normal and natural for you. So let's pray together. Holy God, mighty and powerful, you choose the way of gentleness and vulnerability. You exalt those who are meek and humble. You notice those who are cast out or cast down. And you delight in the wonder of small things. Wildflowers and garden birds. A mislaid coin or a straying lamb. A mustard seed. Even a child's picnic. And you delight in our faith. However small, tentative, battered or inadequate we may perceive it to be. Saving Christ, son of David, son of Mary, son of man. You choose the way of a wandering storyteller. You cross boundaries and challenge taboos. You choose the way of selfless giving. You delight in the smallest glimpses of heaven on earth, touching those deemed untouchable listening to those of other races and other faiths, even, on many occasions, dining with those known as sinners. And you delight in our company. Whoever we are, whatever our story, because you see us as God does. Wise spirit, disturbing, and soothing. You choose the way of mystery and wonder. You surprise us by drawing us closer to God and challenge us to follow more closely the way of Christ. You delight in us even as you challenge and change us. For all that you have shown us of God's mercy and grace, we give you thanks. For all that you've empowered us to do and to be, we confess our wonder. For all that you long to work within our hearts and minds, we open ourselves afresh. That we may delight in the mystery and majesty of God in community and journey onwards in the hope that inspires us. Triune God, hear us now as we gather our voices in the prayer Jesus taught his followers, saying, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory,
So what we're going to do now is we're going to renew our covenants together as a community of God's people. And the promises we're going to use will appear on the screen. Um, They're also in the insert to your order of service. They are, with a few tweeny-weeny tweaks, the same promises that we used 10 years ago, the promises that were chosen by this church as those we should use to pledge to walk together with God. So it's quite a lot of words. I'm not going to ask you to stand up. I'll be kind. But if this is your regular place of worship, um, you're definitely invited to join in. If it's not your regular place of worship, and you think, do you know what, I'd actually quite like to join with you in those words, then feel free, but don't feel under any pressure. So the words that are in yellow on the screen, I don't have a thingy, so I'm not quite sure what they are on the insert, um, will be the words that I say, and the other words we will all say together. Apart from a bit where it's obvious that it's me and it's you, but generally speaking, we'll do it that way. Today we stand with each other, recognising the Christ in our midst, affirming our faith in the God who loves us with a love that transforms us and who calls us to work for a transformed world. Today we stand with each other, recognising the Christ in each other, affirming the calling of the Spirit Today, I bring myself and the gifts I have and renew my covenant vow to serve and encourage this church and community, to respect and care for you, to journey with you, to take responsibility among you, to seek God with you, to listen to God in you, and to work with you to be Christ in this world. where it slightly changes. We are called to be wimps together. We are called to be a worshipping people, seeking and celebrating the God who journeys with us and open to the Spirit in the whole of life. We are called to be an inclusive people, pulling down the walls of prejudice and welcoming the stranger. We are called to be a missionary people, Demonstrating in word and action the redeeming love of God in the world. We are called to be a prophetic people, working for justice, resisting violence, and challenging the abuse of power. We are called to be a sacrificial people, resisting uncertainty, becoming vulnerable, and reflecting the generosity of God. Creating and redeeming God, we give you thanks and praise. Your covenant of grace was made for our salvation in Jesus Christ our Lord. We come this day to renew our covenant with you and with companion disciples to watch over each other 
Our first reading this morning is taken from the first letter of Paul to the Corinthians in chapter 1, beginning at verse 26. Consider your own call, brothers and sisters. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, things that are not, to reduce to nothing things that are, so that no one might boast in the presence of God. He is the source of your life in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption in order that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And from Luke's Gospel, chapter 12, beginning at verse 22. Jesus said to his disciples, therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you eat, or your body, what you will wear. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. And of how much more value are you than the birds? And can any of you, by worrying, add a single hour to the span of your life? If then you're not able to do such a small thing as that, why do you worry about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not clothed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, you of little faith? And do not keep striving for what you are to eat and what you are to drink, and do not keep worrying. For it is the nations of the world that strive after all these things, and your father knows that you need them. Instead, strive for his kingdom, and these things will be given to you as well. Do not be afraid, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give alms. Make purses for yourselves that do not wear out, an unfailing treasure in heaven where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also.
No pressure then. <laughs> you have no idea what it means to be here. Thank you for the invitation. We were on holiday a couple of weeks ago, and when I go on holidays, I go to museums. And I was going around a local history museum, and in this particular one, I found a panel that was dealing with the local history of nonconformity. What can I say? Um, very specialised museum. There was the normal material about the post-Reformation continuation of Roman Catholicism as nonconformist, quite a lot about Methodism because of the area I was in, a panel dealing with the group I hadn't ever heard of, about whom I've had fascinating discussions with my father since then, and one about Baptists, <laughs> who had been around in that area since the mid-1700s. And the panel started with the phrase, Baptists were not popular with others in this area because they were troublesome. <laughs> Today is an auspicious day, this year we celebrate 150 years of the Baptist Union of Scotland and 125 years of the Scottish Baptist College. We are remembering and giving thanks for 100 years of women ministers amongst Baptists in these islands. We're in a congregation with 136 years of life and witness that 32 years ago, I was reminded this morning, took a risk and invited me as a woman not being allowed to preach to come and preach. But we are celebrating 20 years since the Scottish Baptist Union agreed that it might possibly consider at some point having a woman in ministry. And we are commemorating 10 years since this congregation made the choice to be troublesome, more troublesome than usual perhaps, and call a woman to be its pastor. First time a congregation in Scotland had made the choice to call a woman to be the sole or the lead pastor. You need to be proud of yourselves. But throughout our history as Baptists in these islands, two things have been true. We have been a small, or at least a comparatively small community, and we have been a troublesome one. Even at the height of nonconformity, when half of the country would register as nonconformist rather than established church, Baptists were still amongst the smaller of the groups than some, but we were troublesome. We got into trouble because we challenged assumptions, not only about church, but about society. The panel in the museum that I was reading commented that Baptists cause trouble because by not baptising their children, the whole process for recording births and for assimilating children into the social community was disrupted. And those who wanted to try and organise things and keep it under control couldn't do it. And we've gone on doing that. By being a movement of congregationally governed churches, we cause all kinds of problems for legal advisors and lawmakers. Talk to those who are organizing our pensions. We don't fit, and it makes life difficult. In an ecumenical world, when we've chosen to take part, we have raised issues. I've regularly been in tense conversations about denominational differences, only to have someone try to smooth it over with the comment, but we all share in one baptism. And I have to say, well, it's not that easy. We have ways of living together, but we can't just gloss it over. 
But even more significantly is what was lying behind the convictions that Baptists had about baptism and congregational government and the conclusions that emerged. The conviction that faith is a free response to the gracious calling of God and can be constrained by nobody, cannot be required by law, it cannot be denied by law. From that conviction came not only the principled holding on to baptism as an ordinance for believers, church authority as a ministry for a congregation together, but also the insight into freedom of conscience and so religious and then political liberty. It starts in the words of one of our earliest founding fathers, Thomas Helwes. For men's religion to God is between God and themselves. The king shall not answer it, answer for it. Neither may the king be judged between God and man. Let them be heretic, Turk, Jew, or whatsoever. It appertains not to the earthly power to punish them in the least measure. First claim in English for freedom of conscience, for freedom of religion, for liberty under the law, liberty from the law that would constrain conscience. It's the beginning of the modern understanding of being citizens, not subjects. Finding a way to live together with people who have other faiths, of living in a modern, plural, tolerant society, a small group with a legacy that is still troublesome. Similarly, women in ministry have been few but troublesome. Time would fail, as the writer of the Hebrew says, to tell all the stories of the ways in which women have challenged the assumptions, the patterns of ministry. Just a couple. Women who studied at one of the English colleges at a time when she was the only woman student. The college was locked up at 7.30. Women were not allowed into the premises after that time to protect all the young men. So access to the library, for which she needed in order to write her essays, was denied to her. So her colleagues, her male colleagues, devised a way of smuggling her in and out of the windows of the loos <laughs> so that she could do the reading she was required to do. And there's this. I have the T-shirt. <laughs> a woman in ministry who turns up at a conference largely made up of men wearing this T-shirt and just reminds people that assumptions are there to be challenged. Small but troublesome, that's us. That's us as Baptists, that's us as women in ministry, and it is us at our best as local churches. I think it's the kind of church that Paul was writing to in Corinth. At least it's the kind of church he wanted to be writing to. A church of which he could say, you're not big, you're not powerful, you're not wise, you're not strong, you're not any of the things that it looks as if you have to be to win or to do big things or to be respected or to be effective. And he points out that reality not as something to bemoan, but as a delight, as a treasure, as something to give thanks for and to rejoice in, small but troublesome. Not troublesome because they were failing or they were weak or they were without resources, but because they were the place where God was at work. There were all sorts of things, threats, that that small church in Corinth faced. And some of them were because they were weak, they were despised, they were powerless. The city was very diverse. It had amongst its citizens those of great wealth and power. And there was a whole wide range of religious practice and the tradition of moral laxity that comes with many large cities. And the church was not made up on the whole of those who were wealthy or well-versed in the different intellectual traditions of the city or who were free of the different moralities of the city. 
or who were able to get along and be perfect. Just read the letters to the church in Corinth. They didn't constitute a group of people you would choose to head up a movement that was going to revolutionize a community or a world. And yet here they were. They're the ones addressed by Paul as the church of God in Corinth, those sanctified by Christ Jesus and called to be saints. And then and now, and through most of history, it is assumed that to be successful, to be effective, to be worthwhile, we need to be powerful, large, visible, significant, noticed. But I wonder. I wonder if that might be looking at things the wrong way round. To start with, it doesn't take much looking through history of movements and changes to see that it is the small but troublesome groups that make a difference. Those pesky Baptists insisting that baptism comes as a response to the gift of faith, that congregations are gathered communities who meet in the name of Jesus in response to the call of God, not by law. Those whose business it was to keep society stable and well-organised bureaucratically may find us difficult to deal with. But our witness and our presence has been sustained and has increased and more importantly has brought something to the church as a whole and to society. Something that's now valued and honoured even if people don't know that it has its roots in our story. He always wrote that paragraph from his conscience, his heart, his convictions and slowly and gradually and with others getting involved and imperfectly but encouragingly Freedom to worship, freedom to change religion, freedom to explore the implications of the call of truth, even when we disagree, begins to be an aim and an ideal. And okay, we need, may need to struggle for it more now than for some time in the past, but it hasn't been lost sight of. And there are still people and groups and communities living this hope and life, and it started with a small group. And even when people don't know about its roots, yet still it matters. Things change from small beginnings, from almost ignored, from certainly troublesome, and therefore to be contained and, if possible, stopped. Insistencies on following the call of God. The small congregation of believers in various places. The women who knew God was calling and responded even against the advice of those who were older and wiser. And more. Things change when those who look weak, who appear unimportant, who actually are powerless, yet nevertheless, in the words made famous because of another small yet troublesome voice, nevertheless, they persisted. It can be tempting to leave the big world-changing stuff and the kingdom-coming stuff to people with power, the ones whose voices are easy to hear, the ones who believe they have the right to be heard and to act, and to affect things. It's tempting to think that I or we are too small, too unimportant to change things or to have any impact. But today we are acknowledging that is not so. We may be distressed and anxious to live in times when our climate is in trouble, but it's heartening to live at the same time as someone like Greta Thunberg, to be reminded that one voice that persists can change things. Small but troublesome. Maybe not appearing wise, not powerful, not of noble birth, but that doesn't matter when God decides to act and we get to join in. 
So I don't think we get to say, I'm not big enough, we are not strong enough, we're not powerful or influential enough to make a difference, to be the coming of the kingdom. Despite what the wisdom of the age is and the wisdom of the age may tell us, it's not the strong, the powerful, the influential, those of whatever our equivalent is of noble birth. It's not them that get to make a difference. It's the small, troublesome ones who just go on. But I think there is more. We tend to look towards those kind of people to make a difference because that's what we think a difference ought to look like. It ought to be big and splashy and visible and important. But what if the kingdom of God is actually something quite other? When Jesus was talking to the crowd, he said to them the kingdom of God was among them and within them, not the power of Rome, not the effectiveness of the local rich landlord. As he told people not to worry about the future they can't control, about what they could eat, about what they would wear. It's important to recognise that is their defining feature. They are the people who cannot control their future. They are the ones who are not in power, who cannot ensure that they have enough to eat or wear or make it all safe and secure. That's what makes them who they are. It is this weakness and it is to them, to them as powerless and insignificant and unnoticed people that Jesus goes on to say, it is the Father's pleasure to give you the kingdom. That's where kingdom happens. That's how kingdom happens. Not in the power palaces, not in the finance houses or the military might of the empire. Kingdom doesn't happen because might or power or wealth or influence make it happen, but because God gives it. And even more significantly, it doesn't happen where might and power and wealth and influence hold sway. It happens amongst those who are anxious about what to eat and what to wear. Or at least they would be if they didn't hold on to this promise. It is the Father's, your Father's goodwill to give you the kingdom. It's not just that the kingdom starts with the small but troublesome ones. The ones who dare to trust the promise because it's actually all they've got to hold on to. It starts there and it stays there. There are times when the trappings and appearances of power and wealth take over or try to take over the kingdom and it gets turned into something it's not. An assurance of the abundance of food, a gloriousness of clothing, a sense and appearance of power and influence, even of wisdom and significance. These are huge temptations to face and the people of God are constantly facing such and constantly falling for them. For why wouldn't we want to be strong and powerful and influential and effective. Surely that's the way to serve God and transform the world. And so there are the times when the church, when we lust after and even attain glorious clothing, abundant food, much power. Because that looks like a kingdom ought to be. That's how power and change come. Well, so it may appear. But it's not what God promises. It's not the way God acts. It's amongst those who are faced with anxiety about the future, whose future cannot be certain or secured by their own power and determination, that the promise is the Father gives the kingdom. It's to the ones who are not wise, who are not powerful, who do not have status, that God is at work, shaming the wise and the strong in order to bring into being that which is not. It's among the small ones of no account. 
the few Baptists, the few who hear a call and follow it despite its idiocy and others' disapproval, the small congregations, the people who seem of no account, it's there that God brings and enacts and fulfills the kingdom. And the promise of the gift of the kingdom is balanced by the instruction to strive for the kingdom, but it's in the same context. To strive, to live into being the kingdom of God is not to be powerful or influential, strong or wealthy. Those are not the tools or methods we are to use or are available to us. To strive for the kingdom is to dare to trust the words that express its life and its coming, its promised presence to the ones who as far as the strong and powerful and wealthy ones are concerned are of no account. And it's with tools and actions such as these, of being present, of being tenacious, of being non-violent, of being the things you have just promised to be, being creative with small resources and trusting for final ends. That way we seek the promised kingdom, for we know it will come in all kinds of ways and shapes and blessings. It's about speaking truth when the powerful will tell us, what, alternative facts? The powerful in our country, the powerful in our world, the powerful sometimes in our own community. It's about standing our ground when people tell us we can't do that. Not fighting, not threatening, but not giving in and going on and doing it anyway. When we are seeking the kingdom, whatever that might mean in a day-to-day -day way, when we are feeling, when we know ourselves to be weak and powerless and incapable and incompetent, to be wimps in all its meanings, and we don't give up, we don't abandon hope, then we are seeking faithfully. When we are refusing the tools of exploitation or domination, of silencing people, of using the force of our words or our position or our wealth to build a kingdom that we hope and imagine might be godly. When we are daring to know ourselves as those who are not the ones others will see as leaders or as effective, then we are walking the way of Christ and then we are living the way in the kingdom into being. There are all sorts of models around for us about how to build a kingdom. Some of them are even recommended about how to build up a church. And they're models that require money or use power or exploit influence or depend on our skill and our self-determination or even our just trying hard enough. But that is not the seeking and striving Jesus is talking about. He is talking to and about the ones who cannot do that, who do not have those resources, who are ignored and don't matter. The small ones, the unimportant ones, the small group of believers, the ones and twos of women who responded to a disapproved call, the congregations who did it their way because they discerned Christ's intention even when it looked weird to others, even when it looks like failure is all that is possible. Here are the ones among whom and through whom the kingdom comes. And how do we know that? Because of this. The kingdom of God is founded on this. It's not a kingdom of strength and defiance, of retaliation, or even of the ability to protect ourselves. It's a kingdom that starts with a cross, with a life given up, with the complete abandonment of power and of a future, even with the sense of the abandonment of God. For here, all hope has died and all possibility has ended. And it is here, 
It is through this, it is in this and by this that God brings life from death and hope from despair and kingdom in the face of and in despite of power and authority and influence and wisdom in the world. Do not despise the day of small things, says the prophet, not because they become big things, but because it is the small things that are the kingdom. It is in the small people, the small but troublesome ones. How many were at that meeting? There were, over, there were somewhere up about seven or 800, and there were two of us. Boy, did we get some interest. The small but troublesome ones, because they have a faith, a hope, a trust in something more than power, more than wisdom and authority, more than influence and strength. They, we have a trust and dare to have a faith in our Father, a God whose love is unstoppable and unkillable and unending and all-embracing. And so we celebrate. We celebrate 150 years and 136 years and 100 years and 20 years and 32 years and 10 years and today because we celebrate this. A death that is the promise of the kingdom that comes and will not be stopped. Amen.
we come together in our prayers for others and in our prayers for each other. So let us pray. Lord, for the years your love has kept and guided, urged and inspired us, we bring our thanks today. We give thanks that we are called to be a worshipping people. And we pray for your love, your guidance, and your inspiration to seek the Christ in our midst and celebrate you who journeys with us. We give thanks for the love that transforms us. And we pray for your guidance and grace that we may work for a transformed world. Lord, for that word, the word of life which fires us, speak to our hearts and sets our souls ablaze. We hear your call to be a missionary people, to live out your redeeming love in our lives with each other, with our communities, and with those with whom we journey along the way. We give thanks for your word and bring to you our praise. Lord, we pray for those oppressed by pleasure, wealth and care, for young and old. We hear your call to be an inclusive people, welcoming to all, removing the prejudices in our own hearts, in our own minds, and changing our attitudes. We pray that we can respect and care for each other, living for Christ alone. Lord, for our world, we hear your call to be a prophetic people, to work for justice, resist violence, and challenge the abuse of power. We pray for your grace so that we can live out your love in our lives, in the choices we make, and in our influence on the lives of others. Lord, for ourselves, even we, when we are small and powerless, we hear your call for sacrifice in all our vulnerabilities, and we remember your greatest sacrifice for us through your Son. Lord, for all the past years, remembering those who have gone before us, we bring ourselves in our worshipping community. For these years, and all the years, unto unstoppable eternity. Take us as we are, live in us, setting your seals in our hearts. And this we pray through the healing and redeeming blood and the broken body of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.
We gather around the table of the Lord. We come as we are, guests of Christ himself, and all are welcome. We gather around the table of the Lord. We come from many places with many traditions, and all are welcome. We gather around the table of the Lord. We come with many concepts and little understanding, and all are welcome. We gather around the table of the Lord, saints and sinners, strangers and friends, and all are welcome. It's an old story. A familiar story of the God who delights in small things. It's a story that reaches back through time to the days of Moses and Miriam. It's a story that centres on one night in the ministry of Jesus. It's a story that points forward beyond the horizon of time and eternity to the heavenly banquet prepared all. So let us listen to the words of an apostle called Paul. I received from the Lord what I also handed on to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took a loaf of bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body that is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And Paul concluded by saying, For as often as you eat this bread, drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So let us follow the example of Jesus and give thanks. Blessed are you, God of all creation, who brings forth grain from the earth and fruit from the vine. By your goodness we have this bread and this wine, crops of the earth and product of human endeavour. Blessed are you, Christ of eternity, who makes precious the token feast we share by giving new meaning to familiar signs and symbols. Blessed are you, Spirit of wisdom, who opens us to the mystery and wonder of what it is we express here. Accept our gratitude, we pray. Amen. So Jesus took the bread, nothing unusual about that, and he broke it, and, and there was nothing unusual about that. But then he made a small but significant change. He said, this represents my body. And when you eat bread, I want you to remember me. And he shared that bread with everybody in the room, 
And yes, I said it before, but I say it again. He gave bread to Judas. He gave bread to Peter. He gave bread to Andrew and Nathaniel and everybody who was there. Maybe there were unnamed servants. Maybe there were women we don't know. But he gave it to them and said, you're my friends. Eat this and remember me. And so as the stewards bring us our bread, we will eat and we too will remember. Jesus took a cup of wine. Nothing unusual about that either. They always ended with a cup of wine, the cup of blessing. But again, a small but significant difference. Jesus said, this cup is the covenant sealed in my blood. Whenever you drink it, remember me. As is good Baptist tradition, we will retain our glasses that we might drink together, a sign of the unity we at least aspire to in Christ. So another of my little quirks. Let's take a moment and look around at each other. We are the body of Christ in this place. This little congregation, mix of regulars and visitors. We have something special to do that God has called us to do. And I want to thank Ruth for reminding us of that. And I want to thank Jim for being here as a reminder of small things that God uses bigly. <laughs> no such word as bigly, but I just invented it. Not very spiritual, that, but never mind. We are the body of Christ. So in gratitude and faith, let's drink together. Your dying we commemorate. Your rising we celebrate. Your eternal rule of peace we anticipate. Glory be to you, O Christ. May the Lord bless us and keep us. The Lord make his face to shine upon us and be gracious to us. The Lord lift up the light of his countenance upon us and give us peace now and always. Amen.
guessing the Sunday school have been working really hard and we have a little something for Katrina. That's a very large little something. <laughs> Amazing. Should I read it out or would one of you like to read it out? You want to read it? No? It says, thank you for helping us all to grow and blossom over the past 10 years. Love everyone at Hillhead Baptist Church. That's amazing. Thank you so much. Thank you. Well, thank you for allowing me to blossom and grow over the last 10 years because you have taught me more than you will ever know. You have been and continue to be a very, very significant part in shaping my faith and my life. And I do genuinely thank you all for that. And thank you very much for your hard work. So may the God who calls us to the path of Christian discipleship bless us with renewed courage and strength for the journey. Assure us of Christ's continued companionship every step of the way and grant us the gentle wisdom of the Spirit's filling today and every day. <laughs>